right. We do doing okay. We're still awake. It's hot, isn't it? You're all okay. Got some water. Not flagging yet. Give it ten minutes. We'll see how we're doing then, shall we? <laughs> all right, great. Well, it's lovely to see you all. Um, visitors and regulars, those online as well. We're going to dig into God's Word together. Um, if you've got your Bibles, do have them, because um, we'll be uh, digging in. We're also going to jump around all over the place a little bit later, um, but uh, particularly to James 5. Have your Bibles open. That would be fantastic. If we could bring up the uh, PowerPoint. Thank you, David. So I've ominously called this, the judge is standing at the door. Because I just loved that verse. <laughs> it just sounds awesome. And we're going to get to that verse a little bit later. But before we do, most of you will know I'm a father of four. And one of the great joys, all of us will know, um, about uh, raising children or influencing children or helping children um, to grow up as good and moral citizens of this lovely country of ours is getting them to eat their greens. That is one of the primary things we need to achieve um, as parents. Because to be truthful, um, all they really want to eat is the yummy stuff. And that's normally the beige stuff, isn't it? Let's be honest. Beige things are yummy. Pizza, chips, fish fingers, chicken nuggets, anything green, bitter, squidgy, soggy, plant-like, not so much. And you know what? I don't blame them. Because I was exactly the same. I remember, I remember how it used to feel. Particularly... At school dinners. Who remembers their school dinners? Man, school dinners. I think they've changed. I can't tell you that for, for, for real. I haven't checked, but I believe they've changed. But back in my day, um, man, uh, do you remember that mashed potato that was somehow uh, amazingly both incredibly smooth and lumpy and hard all at the same time? It kind of smoothed in and then caught you out with these lumps of rocky, uncooked bits as well. Um, quite an achievement, that. What about that processed ravioli that was somehow like a slippery fish that squeaked across your plate whenever you went near it? The good thing about the ravioli, of course, is you could open it up and hide bits of the greens in that you didn't want to eat, close it. I've only got one ravioli left. I've done pretty good. Um, tapioca, frog spawn. Actually tastes delicious. It's the psychology of eating frog spawn that's the issue, um, I've discovered. Um, but the worst of the worst for me was these things. The bullet peas. They were not garden peas. They were bullet peas. Every single meal had this huge scoop of bullet peas where the dinner lady would take this metal civvy scoopy thing and dip it into this cauldron and pile on this massive scoop of well, presumably once green peas, but they were definitely now grey. You know the ones that I mean? And, and they were dry, and they were bitter, and they were kind of crunchy and dusty. Every time they were there on the plate, I really didn't like them, but we had to eat them before we were allowed out to play. And that was an issue. So every day we used to sit there chewing them down, sort of one to three at a time, because if you put more than that in, it just sort of filled and clogged your mouth and set off your gag reflex. You had to really process them carefully. Um, and I have vivid memories of the dinner ladies serving me. Um, they were frightening. I remember them being strong and intimidating ladies, almost piratical in my memory. One of them actually had this hat in my memory. It looked like a sailor's hat. She clearly was the captain of the pirate crew. And they were frightening people. Um, if anyone knows... Uh, the dinner ladies from ABC in the 1990s. Forgive me, I'm sure they were lovely people, but in my little head, 
these were pirates serving us terrible food. And uh, I remember once, I've got to do something about these peas. So I, I, I came up with a plan. It was quite a clever plan. And it was this. I was simply going to ask for no peace. That was my plan. So I, con- I conjured up the courage and I walked up there and I remember to this day, I've never, ever forgotten this moment with my little plastic tray. And I just quietly said to them, excuse me, in my kindest and nicest voice, um, please could I have no peas today? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was as if I was Oliver Twist asking for more. It was that moment, the look of anger on this lady's face, followed by the phrase, and I've never forgotten it, and oft quoted it, you get what you're given, as she scooped in an even bigger lump of peas and boomed them on my plate. It backfired spectacularly. The truth is, if kids could choose, they would just choose the beige stuff. They wouldn't have any green on the plates at all. Um, And yet, as an adult... I don't know about you, but I've started to discover that the green stuff's really actually very delicious, and my body actually craves it. If you just gave me beige food, I'd just sweat, and I'd be like, I need some cabbage, some irony, beautiful, bitter, vitamin-y, nutrient-y goodness in my diet. We realize that we need it. And it's a bit like that with the Bible. When choosing a preaching plan, it's tempting just to choose um, the nice bits, the popular bits, cherry-pick the passages we want to hear. But actually, when we do that, we hugely miss out. We don't get a balanced diet. It's why we often preach in sequence through a book rather than just doing thematic. Sometimes we'll do a theme throughout a, a, a sermon series. But often it's a book and we follow it through because then we have to tackle the tricky passages. It's called the full counsel of God or the full counsel of Scripture. We don't want to leave anything out. Um, they're important parts of our diet and today is one of those passages as a preacher you look at it first glance and you go ouch this is a tricky one I remember as a staff team ministry team we looked at it and we all went "Ooh, that's a nice one for Sunday it kicks off straight in the deep end it talks about weeping and wailing and misery of people and their possessions rotting, being consumed and corroded, of flesh being eaten like fire, of slaughter and condemnation and murder. And some of you are going, yeah, come on, this is great. And most of us are going, what is this all about? It's one of those passages where you think, can I just pass on the bullet piece for today, please? Um, But it's one where as a preacher and as a church, we get what we're given. It's in Scripture. And actually, as I've delved in, I've realized it's actually a really important passage. It's a passage that splits into three. We're going to look at it in three angles. The first part tells us to look to the future, to understand what's going to happen. second part then encourages us, in the light of this, to be patient and stand firm in the present. And the third part invites us to look back in history and to rejoice at the saving work of God. So let's dig into the bullet piece together. And my prayer is that as we do, we'll discover they're perhaps not quite so bitter, dry, and grey after all. So Lord, as we just dig into your scriptures now, into your word, we pray your, your, your written word would become to us now the living word as we encounter Jesus, as we are changed. Speak through your word, we pray now. Come Holy Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's have a little look. And if you have a look in your um, Bibles, we're going to look at the first uh, six um, 
Six verses. Look to the future and understand. We're going to wrestle with this difficult opening for a moment. And I think it's helpful to understand what genre we're actually reading here. And you remember back when we first kicked off this series about James, we realized this was a letter written to largely Jewish um, believers who'd become Christians, and they were having a tough time. This was the early days of the church. They were being persecuted. They were suffering. And this letter was all about helping them to dare to be like Jesus, to be courageously Christ-like in a difficult context, which is what we've been thinking about each and every week. But actually, this section, these six verses, are like a sub-genre within this letter. It's actually what's known as a judgment oracle. I'll give you a little bit of theology here, or rather biblical studies. There's this genre called judgment oracle, and this is one of them. They're actually found throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. The Old Testament loves cracking out a judgment oracle here and there to keep us going. Um, and in essence, they're prophecies concerning what's going to happen in the future, particularly in regard to judgment. They're dire warnings about destruction to come, particularly destruction of the cruel and the vindictive and the twisted and the arrogant and the boastful and the unjust. Judgment oracles have two key elements. You'll spot it as you go through scripture now. You'll be looking for them. You'll find them there. Firstly, an accusation of wrongdoing. And then secondly, a consequence, a judgment in response to the wrongdoing. And we might sit here now going, Matt, I don't really like this sort of stuff. It's a bit hellfire and brimstone for me this morning. I'm just going to quietly nod off to sleep if you don't mind and stick my fingers in my ears. I prefer the nice teaching about Jesus, or his nice teaching, please. But actually, even Jesus, don't mistake this guy, don't miss this, even Jesus brought oracles of judgment. Jesus, meek and mild, it's it's not the true Jesus. Jesus had some strong and stern things to say to those who were abusing, those who were in power. Mark 13, Matthew 23, forms of judgment oracles where he, Jesus, declares the destruction of the temple. He declares judgment on the religious hypocrites. He talks about the terrifying day of destruction that's to come. So if we're going to take Jesus seriously, folks, if we're going to take our faith seriously, and the Bible seriously, we mustn't avoid these oracles of judgment. Instead, we need to listen up and take note. And interestingly, that's one of the ways you can recognize that you're about to read a judgment oracle, because that's what they start with, almost always. They start with a very strong call to listen up, Pay attention. Look. Behold. And that's exactly how James starts this judgment oracle. Now listen, you rich people. Pay attention. Hear what I'm about to say. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Wow. Let's break it down. Have a quick look together at what's written here. Firstly, it's written to you rich people. James clearly has a particular group of people in mind who his readers would recognize, some of which might even be connected to the church and be hearing this oracle, this judgment letter themselves, this this part of the letter themselves, might be hearing it. It's time to wipe the smile off your face, James says, instead to weep and wail because judgment is coming. So what have they done? That's how a judgment oracle normally starts. Well, interestingly, James doesn't start it that way. He inverts it. Instead of talking about what they've done, he goes straight in. Straight in with the consequence of what's going to happen to them. He's not messing about here. He paints a nightmarish picture using incredible picture language, metaphorical language, of all their earthly wealth and riches rotting, all the things they're so proud of and put their confidence in. They're going to fail you. 
In fact, he uses a prophetic perfect tense here. He's saying they're already failing you. It's already happening. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. He's painting this picture. It's happening now. But it's not just your stuff, he says, facing judgment. These rotting earthly goods will lead to the rotting of your own bodies, he says. Your own flesh will be eaten like fire. Man, I did warn you. We're going for it today. Gosh, that's how you paint a picture of judgment, isn't it? We're not quite used to such stern words, are we? Well, let's ask why, what's going on here? What on earth have they done? Well, James now paints a picture of their appalling behaviour. It's not just that they're simply rich, that's not the issue. But that with the power their riches have brought them, they have oppressed the poor. They have self-indulged whilst others have gone without. You have hoarded your wealth. You have failed to pay your workers fairly. The very people who are mowing your field and bringing in your food, bringing in your riches, you've treated them with disdain, as if they exist only to serve you and your needs. You've lived on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself like around a feast table in the day of slaughter. And all the while, instead of helping the poor and the suffering, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one, James Wright, who was not opposing you. This is why judgment is coming. This is why the Lord God Almighty stands against you. Listen up, you rich people. Weep and wail. It's uncomfortably powerful. Makes us squirm in our seats, or at least it should. Here in this judgment oracle, we have an extraordinary, unhindered, frightening, immensely powerful testimony against injustice, greed, self-indulgence, sin, It's a stark and apologetically vivid picture of the judgment that is to come. Written as a serious warning to those at fault. Designed to bring about a change in their unjust behaviour. But I want to suggest you quickly also does two other really important things. The first one is this, friends. It tells us something really important about the character of God. It tells us to him, justice really matters. Injustice really matters to him. It's not a side point. It's not an incidental issue. It's fundamental to his character. The psalmist, Psalm 89 verse 14, wrote it this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Justice is foundational to the very rule, the presence, the character of our loving and faithful God. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking otherwise. Through judgment oracles, it's clear God wants us to know this about him. He's not some softy, softy, nicey teddy bear who can have the wool pulled over his eyes by the arrogant and the rich and the oppressors. No, when it comes to establishing justice, he will pull no punches for his wrath burns against the injustice of this world and in this world. See, it may sometimes seem like the poor have no one The beaten, the abused have no champion here on earth. That their pain goes unseen, their cries unheard. But scripture tells us that they have a champion in heaven who sees it all and hears it all. He hears every cry. Verse 4 says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. James uses an extraordinary term here. He literally picks up the Hebrew word for Lord Almighty instead of the Greek, which is what he was writing in. Almost to make the point clearer, it is the most majestic, most grand, most awesome title of God used in Hebrew. It is the the Lord Sabaoth. 
And it basically means the Lord of heaven's armies. He has heard their cry. He has seen. He is the redeemer and avenger of the poor. The omnipotent, invincible, all-powerful one. This is our God, the Lord of heaven's armies, whose wrath burns against all injustice everywhere. And if you think about it, although this may make us feel uncomfortable, we wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want a God who looks upon injustice and goes, hmm, one of those things. It matters to God. It really, really matters to our God. There are a few things worse than the stench of injustice. Someone blatantly gets away with lies and violence that hurts and crushes the vulnerable. And they seemingly and arrogantly get away scot-free while the victim continues to suffer and struggle in pain. I don't know about you, but the reason we hate this feeling so much, I believe it's because we're made in the image of God. We've been made to deeply feel injustice just like he feels. The truth is that as we seek as a church to become more like Jesus, more like the one who actually cursed the oppressive leaders in his day, woe to you, he said, and restored justice and dignity and healing and love to the outcast and the spat out and the disregarded and the struggling, then issues of injustice should matter more to us, not less. We continue to grow in Christ-likeness and our passion and work and striving for justice in this world should never wane until the great day of justice comes when his kingdom breaks in in all its fullness. And that's the second thing this judgment oracle teaches us, that the day is coming, friends, when these things will be set right. There will be judgment. There will be justice. We learn that our world of such pain and chaos and evil, how it feels, doesn't go unanswered. An unprovoked war, the burning of houses, the shelling of residential buildings and hospitals, the killing of children, the abuse, rape, torture, death of innocence. There is a judge. There is a judge. It will not go unaccounted for. The day is coming when justice will be done. One day, every single one of us, Scripture says, will have to stand before the judge and account for our deeds. Every single one of us. Doesn't matter who you are, Whether you're the president of some great military power, whether you're the person that runs the local corner shop, every single one of us. James is telling us to look to the future and understand God is a God of justice. He will not be duped. His day of justice is coming. And so in the light of this, James says, therefore, then... Be patient in the light of this. He says to those suffering and struggling, my brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. Verse 7. It was not an easy time for the early church. There were forces at work that reveled in greed and pain, abuse and violence. And those forces are still at work today, folks. For all of our advancements, and I love life, and I love humanity. I love our beauty, our joy, our creativity, and believing the best. But we have to be honest, we still see great suffering, great inequality, systemic, economic, environmental, political injustices and abuse. We see violence and privilege and power and lies seemingly going unchecked in their dominance. And we experience suffering ourselves. Mental struggles, physical struggles, bullying, abuse, pain, racism, injustice into all of this mix. For the early Christians, their faith had even added to their suffering. 
for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that is the case today. Right now, friends, we do not see the fullness of the justice we long for. James says, be patient, stand firm. God is still on the throne. His plans will come to to pass. Don't let your frustration rise up and take over. Don't give up and jack it all in. Don't lose Christ-likeness and and, 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 and turn to vindictiveness. Don't despair. Don't turn to harmful behavior. Don't start judging each other and falling out among yourselves. Don't lose focus. Instead, be strengthened in knowing that the Lord's coming is near. Like a farmer waiting for the rains and the harvest, they are coming. It's on its way. Live in the light of the coming of Jesus. Take your faith seriously. Run this race well. Don't blame God, but know he is good. Know he is just and know that he is coming soon. In fact, James says that this day of his coming is so close, it's as if he's already poised at the door. As we are patient and stand firm in the present, James says to us, the judge is standing at the door. What an ominous turn of phrase, I love it. It sends a shiver of excitement and expectation down your spine, but don't misunderstand, it's not the same for everyone. For many, it should send a shiver of fear. Because when the day finally comes, that the Lord comes again, this time it will not be gentle and quiet like the first time he came. This time he will come in power and judgment and put an end to the rule of greed and injustice and sin and establish his perfect justice, his kingdom forever. Throughout scripture this day is promised over and over and over again. It's fundamental, foundational to the story arc of our scripture. It's called the day of the Lord. And it's almost always actually depicted as a terrifying day, not an exciting day. We think, really? It's like, yeah. Joel 2, let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. Mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it, Joel says. You see, this is the day we're waiting for. And it's terrifying in some ways. We must understand that when Jesus comes again as the head of heaven's armies, wielding his sword of justice, everyone will know about it. I don't know if you saw the um, red arrows the other day. Extraordinary. They crossed over Taunton. Well, Becky and I went out to the garden to look up, like the farmer looking for the rains. They're coming. We stood there looking up. And then we looked at our watches and thought, they're taking their time, aren't they? And we looked a bit more and we stood there for another five minutes. They're still not here yet. So we rang someone who we knew at Vivory Park where they were supposed to be and went, oh yeah, they passed ten minutes ago. (laughs) So we went back inside slightly disappointed. It's not going to be like that in the day of the Lord. It's not going to be, oh, has it happened? Oh yeah, I think that happened yesterday, didn't it? No, everyone will know. There will be no doubt about it, for it will be the day when his judgment, his justice, his power, his authority, his reign, his rule, his name, his glory will finally be known by everyone. Scripture says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Before him, every evil deed, twisted truth, selfish act will be exposed, and no clever human mitigating argument or lie will stand. Justice will finally be done. The judge is standing at the door, James says. It should send fear through the veins of every person. It should cause weeping and terror throughout the world as we stand and realize that we'll all be judged for the wickedness, inhumanity and injustice we've all been party to. And yet. And yet. And this is the great and yet of the gospel. 
and yet. For those who know the judge, it will actually be a day, Scripture says, that will bring utter joy. For those who have turned to him, who have repented, humbled themselves, given their hearts to him, put their trust in him, are those as guilty as anyone else, Scripture says that they will be declared without fault, forgiven, accepted, as white as wool. Truth is, this Lord of Heaven's armies, this fearsome judge, lovingly invites each and every person on this planet to come and know him. To receive instead of judgment his love and forgiveness. Straight after saying, who can stand in Joel 2? He then writes, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I'll eat with that person and they with me. Revelation 3 verse 20. Holman Holt's great, Hunt's great uh, painting there, the light of the world. The judge stands at the door and knocks. And this is either a knock that shoots fear through your soul or fills your heart with joy. The difference is whether you know the judge. For one, it's opening the door to judgment. To another, it is opening the door to their friend, to their saviour, to their lord, to their king. So look to the future, James says. Understand that justice will come. And in the light of this, patiently stand firm in the present. Take comfort knowing that the Lord you know and love has a plan. He is coming soon. It's not easy right now, James says. Yes, you are suffering. Yes, you're going to have to wait a little while longer. But now having looked forward, James encourages us to look back on this. I'm going to finish. Look back in history and rejoice as you see how the prophets foresaw and patiently waited, even as they suffered, for the plans of God to come to pass. Look back in history and rejoice. Look to Job, he says, who suffered greatly, patiently endured, but he foresaw that one day justice would come, that he would be redeemed, his saviour would live. I know that my redeemer lives, you know that verse from Handel's Messiah, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin's been destroyed, Job said, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I am not an other. My heart yearns within me. He saw justice. He saw resurrection and it came to pass. Look to Ezekiel who along with so many of God's people suffered in captivity and suffering but he foresaw that one day God would come personally and take action against the oppressors and come himself to set things right as the great shepherd of his sheep. This is what the sovereign Lord says in Ezekiel. I'm against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable. I myself will tend my sheep. I will search for the lost. I will bind up the injured. Strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And it came to pass. The shepherd came. Look to the prophet Isaiah who foresaw that not only God would come as a shepherd, but he would suffer. In the most unfathomable act of love and grace, God himself would take the wrath and the judgment and the punishment that we felt and heard in that oracle that stands against all of us, really, in our injustice and greed and sin. And he'd channel it upon himself. He'd take it upon himself. This God of justice would pay the price for our rebellion, for your rebellion, for my rebellion, so that we might be forgiven. So that all who put their trust in him might be forgiven. 
He would die in my place and die in your place. And then he would rise again. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah said, crushed for our iniquities. But after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So friends, look back in history. See the great plan of God and rejoice. Realize God is the God of judgment and justice. Don't be frightened by that. That is part of his character. See that he is also gracious and compassionate beyond measure. He will judge with wrath the unrepented injustice and arrogance and boasting of this world. But as we look back, we realize just how patient he is with all of us. His heart is for all to come to know him. The judge of heaven and earth will do what is right. And that's why he came himself. He paid for all our mess. That's why he's still waiting, still loving, still inviting, still forgiving. Look back and rejoice and see what the Lord has brought about. Realize that he came, he died, he rose, and he's coming again to bring about his perfect justice. But until that time, we don't just stand around doing nothing. But Joel promised something else. He promised that in those days, God would pour out his spirit. That we might be like this God of justice. We, meet, we might be like Jesus. And in the meantime, that we might be made more like him whose heart burns against injustice. That we might stand up for the poor, the oppressed, the broken, the hurting, the struggling. I read, and I'll finish with this, we're going to sing in a moment. In fact, I could ask the band just to come up. I read this week, I watched this week, there's a YouTube by a chap called Jordan Peterson. Um, he's a controversial psychologist. I don't recommend him to you. He's just one of the voices that you tune into as a pastor trying to understand what's going on uh, in society. And he, right, he, he spoke directly to the Christian churches. That's why I watched it. To the Christian churches, a message. And part of this, he's trying to wake us up to be who he thinks we should be. He finishes with this statement, your churches, for God's sake, I find it hard to say because that's just blasphemy, But your churches, he says, quit fighting for social justice, he says. Quit saving the planet, he says. Attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. Do it now before it's too late. Friends, off the back of today's message, I hope you realize just how mistaken he really is. Our call as a church is not just to sit back as injustice ravages our Lord's creation and the poor and the vulnerable and the abused. This is the reason why Jesus came. This is why he suffered on that cross. Because of these things, these things matter. They're an abomination to the Lord. They should be an abomination to us. We should stand with everything we have against such practices. We should dare to be like Jesus. We should dare to play our part, filled with his spirit, in seeing more and more of his kingdom come. However, it's true, this is not our only focus. We also attend to souls in a way like no other organization, group, or philosophy ever can or ever will. And Peterson is right. There is a time coming when it will be too late. So in this moment, I want to attend to some souls. Would you stand for me if you're able as we finish? Simply want to say to you this morning those words. The judge standing at the door. I simply want to ask you, are you ready to meet the judge? When he knocks, will your heart fill with fear or joy? Do you know him? Do you love him? He's wonderful. He loves you more than you could ever realize. Have you surrendered to him 
in humility and trust. For today and now he knocks with love. Today he calls your name and says, come and follow. Come and receive forgiveness and grace. We know from scripture the day is coming when he will return in power to judge the living and the dead. And when he does that, none of us can stand in our own righteousness, our own merit, no matter how honourable, organised, kind, humble, reasonable or good we think we are. The Bible says that all of us have fallen short. None of us can stand before the holy God and reason with him. All of us are found utterly wanting. And yet his invitation to each of us is a personal invitation filled with love that says, come to me. Put your trust in me. Follow me. Believe and be baptised. And in that moment, my death on that cross means the judgment that you deserve no longer falls on you. For I love you more than you could ever know. The debt has been paid. You are now forgiven, perfect, righteous, even though you're still flawed and broken and got a long way to go. Rather than a fearsome judge, friends, my prayer is that each one of us, both online and here, will know Jesus as our friend. So let's get right with him this morning. Just pray together. Invite you as we pray now to humble yourself before King Jesus. If you've done it before, then do it again. Maybe it's the first time you've ever really done it. This is the moment. No more umming and ahhing. Should I, could I, would I? It's not a weak or illogical thing to do. It's the most significant and logical decision any human can ever make. The bow before the King of Kings comes to judge the living and the dead, but to realize in this moment of our humility and trust, He calls us by name. He's full of grace and compassion, full of love and forgiveness. He is your saviour, your Lord and your friend. The Lord Jesus, King Jesus, we humble ourselves before you this morning. Some this morning, some of us, we're saying this for the first time. We're sorry for doing things our way. We recognize in our own merit none of us can stand. Thank you, Lord, that you died on that cross. Thank you, Lord, that you paid the price. Thank you, Lord, you took the judgment. Thank you, Lord, that you rose again and you're calling us now to come and follow, to come and live, to come and serve, to come and fight for justice, to come and see God's kingdom breaking in more and more through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves and we long for that day when you will return and there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more injustice. Your kingdom will have come in all its fullness. We bless you this morning. We humble ourselves. We give you our yes, Jesus. We will follow you. Thank you. In your name. Amen.